So we're going to just chat before we get started. But so it, I wanted to invite you all in here and really struggling with with what to call this particular episode of the podcast. Um, you know, working with titles like LGBTQ and incarceration, mm. super boring. What sort of ideas do you all have? Like, how do you identify yourself? Um, this may be the poet in me. Yeah. But uh, Oh, my name is Letitia Lachey. Um, I go by she, her. Uh, we'll do about, that later, but uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't That's know. Okay. We no, we're just chatting. Um, how about be out about it? Like, be loud about it, but be out about it. Love it. Other ideas. But out big. Like, the Ouch. word out is big. Yeah. <laughs> But does that speak to being incarcerated? Yes. Yeah, we want to be, <laughs> be out. out. Oh, okay, okay. Be oh, out oh, about be it. out, like be yeah. out of... Be, out, be gay, be free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be out about be it. Be out, yeah. There's, I, the thing that jumped to my mind was living with conviction, or living with, not living with a conviction, but living with conviction. Oh. That's good, but like, with that being said, it's just so much, it's like, most of us as felons... As people who have been incarcerated, it's like a, the last thing I we're gonna, they're gonna know that we're in prison that I was mm-hmm. in prison. So like so much linkage to that conviction. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like we're, we have all these words to describe who we were, who we were, and who what we belong to. Yeah. So like maybe not using words like conviction, it, like different ways of saying being out or being free or whatever, without having to use. This is such a hard word that most of the time people will see, oh, is it about prison? I don't even want to listen to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's no one cares no about one prison. Cares. <laughs> no one cares about prisoners. No one cares about the 13th Amendment, you know. Mm-hmm. But I do like it. That is that is solid. I'm just saying as a, as a person who's been in prison, it's like the last thing I need is to be reminded yeah. in mm-hmm. a title. Yeah. 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 For sure. I don't know. What, you, what do you think, Chrissy? I think. I mean, Ray, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're okay. I think that we haven't even come up with a decent word to describe our community. We have returning citizens. We have <laughs> formerly incarcerated, yeah. justice involved, and everything but human. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Tupac. Fresh. Could you hear me when I was saying stuff earlier? Okay, cool. Okay. So that didn't, I mean, that was good. That was good stuff. I don't really have an answer yet. So we're just going to move with it and I'm going to go ahead and get started and read the intro. So hello, my name is Miles and I'm your host of Stop Stigma, Start Healing, the raw and uncensored podcast where we talk openly and unapologetically about our lives as, as trans, lesbian, bi, gay, queer, and HIV positive humans. Our goal is to stop the stigma that prevents us from getting the health care we deserve. Each episode will feature real people in our community and conversation and storytelling. And here's my disclaimer. The experiences here um, shared here are valuable and important, and they are based on the lives of those in this space and some of you who are listening. Prepare to be educated, shocked, seen, triggered, and informed. No matter your response, keep the conversation going. Start healing. So welcome to episode six. Uh, it is still a working title. I came in tonight with the idea that this important topic was going to be about uh, LGBTQ folks who have been incarcerated, but we were kicking around some ideas, perhaps landing on being out about it, which I kind of love. Also, uh, living with conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, break out. <laughs> break stay out, out. Stay out. Unicorns behind bars. Mm, yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. Okay. I don't have a follow up. That was <laughs> I am a unicorn, for I am unique. Yes. I am a- <laughs> so to get started tonight with, I think, uh, an amazing group of people who are going to share their experiences, I first would like us to go around the room, um, share your first name, your pronouns, and what do you want the audience to know about who you are? And and I don't define what that is. You get to tell us and, and the people listening kind of who you are today and i i won't even assign who goes first and i won't even look at anybody hi my name is letitia i go by she her i'm a poet um i uh, also have a podcast called uh pros and ex-cons it's really good oh, oh yeah i'm a wordplay i love it's a play on words with a play it. on words 
Uh, I'm also part of the NAACP, from the women of NAACP, so I'm an activist about prison reform. And also, I'm a black woman just existing. I'm a black woman who is a lesbian, who has a felony, who is, <laughs> who is just trying to exist. So... Hi guys, I'm Ray. Uh, she, her pronouns. So I am formerly incarcerated, which I often say. I am also a student at the Ohio State University working on my bachelor's in social work. I am, I consider myself an artist, but I'm just, my time incarcerated provided me with a passion and a purpose for prison advocacy and reform. So everything since I've since I've been released, I've been working towards that um, for the women who are still incarcerated. Say that. Also, you're an artist. Don't do that. Don't do yourself that disservice. <laughs> She's an artist. I think I got paint on my hands still. <laughs> Ew. Uh, my name is Zach. I use he, him pronouns. And um, what do I want folks to know about me? Um, I'm also an artist. I'm a, a pianist. Um, also an activist and an advocate for those uh, returning home. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have an immense amount of resources coming home. And so wherever I can, I try to pay that forward to folks who don't necessarily have the same access that I was fortunate enough to have. Um, I also have the unique, uh, I guess, distinction of being a registrant, which a lot of folks treat as a super felony. Um, and, you know, there's a fair amount of stigma with that. Um, I'm in recovery. I am uh, on a journey treating mental health. Um, I'm redeveloping what spirituality looks like. I'm a dog dad. I'm a plant dad. I, that's that's about that's about it. I'm a plant mom. It's so I'm a plant dad. It's so mm -hmm. hard to keep them things alive. Well, I have we're a up on winter, bro. I have a path that that thing will survive and survive. It's living on asbestos right now, okay. <laughs> and it's, she is just a sassy bitch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're all good. So if we can go back around and if you want to, if you wouldn't mind sharing with those listening, um, some information about kind of what your experiences were, what maybe led up to being incarcerated, what that experience was like and, um, yeah, whatever you're comfortable with sharing. Sure. I'll go first. <laughs> um, we'll make him go last. I mean, we'll make him go first next round. <laughs> Um, so 2008 was the year I graduated. It was the best and worst year of my life. It was the year I started, 2008, um, I started doing, uh, Percocet. So I was addicted to pills for, I don't know, eight years till about 2023. And then I started with the heroin epidemic and it moved on to crack cocaine and which led to a prison number. <laughs> which led to me getting out, which led to another prison number. Um, so my drug addiction and experience with recovery um, has what's landed me to this spot now, and my addiction was the reason for my incarceration. Great. Do you mind sharing um, how much time were you in? Yeah. And, oh. Yeah. So my first, first number, <laughs> first time I was incarcerated, my first number, I did a year. And then I judicialed out. And the second time, I served three years in a Dayton women's correctional facility. Hello. <laughs> My name is Letitia. I also didn't even know you were a felon, too. So, like, what's up, gang, gang? But not like that. Not like gang, gang like that. It's A-A-V-E, people. Calm down. Um, so, in, I graduated in 2012. Um and I was 20 years old. And during that time, I don't really talk about this a lot because me and Chrissy, me and Ray were locked up together. Sorry, I keep calling. I'm so used to That's calling. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we were locked up together. So like when I met Ray, what year did you come in? 2015. Ooh, I was 23. So I, in 2012, on August 29th, I took a 22 revolver and I shot myself in the chest on purpose. I was trying to take my life. Uh, my girlfriend had just broke up with me. I had been bouncing around. Me and her had been living together, bouncing around from different places, ended up staying with somebody. I lost my license. 
lost my car because it's like a little fender bender. So like a lot of things hit me and I had gained like 200 pounds. And so I had ADHD. So I was on a lot of like medicine that kept me at a certain size. So this whole time I thought it was me like, oh, and so all these things happen. And one day I, I try to try to talk to her and I was like, let's meet in a public place. And she was just like, I'm not in love with you. And something was like, all right. You've done enough. You graduated high school because I was the second person in my family to. And I was like, it's time to die. So I took a 22 revolver. I stole it from my from a friend's house who I ended up reconnecting. I love you and thank you. And um, I went to go get my stuff because I had graduated with this. My mom, and my mom didn't come to my graduation. It was a lot of problems. So this lunch lady who was there for me this entire time when I was struggling and living on my own in my car going to high school gave me this necklace. Well, in my head, I was like, I want to die with this necklace. Because that was the, I went to take my necklace, go to a, a, a park and off myself under a bridge. That was the goal. It didn't happen like that. It ended up with me shooting myself in the chest with a 22 revolver on somebody's property. And fact was in Columbus, I had a gun. Not the fact that I shot myself, not the fact that uh, nobody else was hurt. I had got hit with a felonious assault and uh, a gun specification mm. and uh, realizing up to two months ago because of the gun was not mine. It was stolen. So I have a receiving stolen property. So I have a double whammy. I'm a violent offender. I have a gun and a theft. And it was like when I got sentenced, it was like them saying... You're guilty because you didn't die. Mm. And as a black woman, I'm already a lesbian, right? I'm lesbian. I'm a masculine lesbian. I'm a stud. So the the emasculate the emasculation of dark skinned black women, where they is they 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 send women to prison at a higher number, especially women of color, particularly black women. And what they tell you in court cases, what I, what will they tell women when you go to trial? You try to look as feminine as possible. You know, wear dresses, whatever, so that way you look soft. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm already masculine. I am dark skinned. Well, the fact was, nigga, you're going to prison. And they got me with a plea deal. I ended up doing, they were like, you can do 18 months in judicial out. You can do, get this time in judicial out in 18 months. I went, at tw I went in, I got locked up at 20 and I got out three months before I turned 28. Mm. And I am now 30. So, yeah. Mental health is a bitch, but I'm thriving, and what? <laughs> and I am a, such a champion about healing and 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 mental health because you know what? I went to prison, and that's why I'm so passionate about prison reform. You have to go through the system in order to break it, to mm -hmm. change it. I I grew up in neighborhoods with black people. Where I have family who went to prison and stuff, but it was like it's it's a different beast when you're in there. Absolutely, it's a different beast, and it was like. I went there for shooting myself, but I needed to go. And now I have voices like you, who I met through, and vice versa. So, sorry. Go ahead. Um, oh, boy. So. <clears throat> Follow-up trauma. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Um, so, I was not born and raised in Columbus. I was born and raised uh, in southeast Ohio on a 300-acre cattle farm. Somehow made it out without a pitchfork to the face, but... Um, <laughs> Moved to Columbus in 09, having just buried the second of my parents and <clears throat> was very much like career, career, career. We don't need counseling. We don't need to acknowledge grief. We just need success, status, look like you've got it all together because that's what my mom always told me you needed to do was mm -hmm. look like you have it all together. And um, so I started teaching. Um, I started really leaning into what I didn't know at the time was sex addiction I started leaning into what I didn't know at the time was borderline personality disorder, anxiety, depressive disorder, all left untreated. And my only way to mitigate was success. Go, 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 look the part. Um, didn't really fit in with the LGBT community uh, coming from a smaller college town at OU and really struggled to find identity. I was living with my aunt and uncle in a suburb. Um, and so my only meaning I found through my career and leaving all of those symptoms unmitigated, teaching students who were sometimes as little as five years younger than me, I made some really horrible choices. And in 2015, 13, 15, um, the shit hit the fan. And it 
kind of like you were sharing is something that I am eternally grateful for because it forced me to get real about the hard work of trying to save my life. Um, both my parents struggle with addiction. Both my parents struggle with mental health. Um, neither of them did a thing about it. And so uh, it took a felony conviction. It took being a registrant to come out on the other side with a much deeper sense of purpose, who I am now, who I want to be in 10 years. My relationships are better than they've ever been. My identity is stronger than it's ever been. I'm the healthiest that I've ever been. And that's after serving three years in prison. Um, that's after serving three years on parole. Uh, so it was an insane journey. Um, I have seen humanity at its rawest form in all senses of the word. Um, sure. I can squat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I am still grateful for it because it forced me to do the work on myself that I'd been putting off for 28 years at that time. But I, I for me personally, I think, and it may be different for you folks, but mm -hmm. I think it's important to note that it wasn't prison. It was in spite of prison. That, Ooh, yes. Oh, yes. That oh, yes. in spite of prison. Growth yeah. and oh, healing it's not rehabilitation? Occurred. No. Huh. Not oh. in the slides. <laughs> Correction, it's not correction and rehabilitation. <laughs> you can hear the that's satire right there. That's that ODC. Uh, yeah. oh, say ODC, ODR. How you doing? ODC. <laughs> yeah. What was ODR? Was that the a hard department of rehabilitation? Rehabilitation. Yep. Oh, corrections. Yeah. So a, a follow up question, and thank you all for for sharing that. A, a follow up question I have I because be specifically this is about being LGBTQ in this intersection of. Mm -hmm of having that experience being incarcerated. How, how did your identity play into you catching the case? Is that mm -hmm. not using the right language? Yeah, well done. Catching oh, he's so hip, everybody. So yeah. He caught a case. <laughs> case. And, and then, because then after, after that, I'm gonna ask, what is it like now being out in the community as someone who's been incarcerated? Mm. And, I think, and how the communities respond to that. So. Yeah, I think for for me, I had a number of factors working against me in terms of like the litigation of the case itself. It was all over the media because I was a teacher. I worked at a Catholic school, so now I was also like a, a priest, I guess. And there was, that was a scandal <laughs> too. I, I don't, I don't Jesus. know. Yes, thank you. But I think in my experience of seeing how Ohio and larger metropolitan counties deal with these types of cases, when they are same sex, it is usually dealt with more severely. Mm. Um, in I'm my sure. experience, absolutely. Um, if the defendant is a male, always more severe than if mm -hmm. the defendant is a female. Um, but in terms of like the LGBT community and their sectionality there, I mean, obviously there was a lot of uniquenesses in that, you know, it was a same sex type of offense, right? So that brought a certain amount of taboo to something that was already a felony and very mm. problematic. Mm. Um, but it was exacerbated by the fact that because my charges were so public, it almost felt like the community cut themselves off from me, which at the time, me trying to do the work of establishing identity made it that much more difficult. I fought my case for two years. And in those two years really like started to do the work that I talked about that I had been putting off doing, but I couldn't go to union without someone verbally harassing me and saying that you are why our community gets called perverts. Mm. You are why our community gets called pedophiles. And so I had to somehow put that on my shoulders, continue to lean into the work, and then go to prison, and then come out. And as recent as Pride this year, June, at the drag show, someone messaged me on Grindr with not a single thing in their profile and said, why are you lying about your age? People have so much worse to worry about with you. Happy Pride. So, I mean, that's my experience, and I am grateful that I've done the trauma work to be resilient to those types of things. Um, but it, for me, has been both a huge part of trauma and resentment, how I have been treated by the community. Mm. Well, I suppose this question's a bit tough for me to answer because I never personally, like, made an effort to be part of the gay community, um, Socially in Columbus. Um, but is that part of your story? Did that help lead into 
your initial conviction, your drug use. I don't want to turn this into therapy, but like with <laughs> some of that, not like, everything leads back to gay, sir. Well, but, <laughs> not every, so when you did crack, you were like, mm, pussy. I don't know, but no, but was it part of, you know, trying to come to terms with your sexuality? No. Um, okay. I mean, I, I came out in 2000 when I was 16, okay. I came out, I was with a girl and I was with a girl all the way up until I was 18, at which point I was sexually assaulted by a male. Mm. In 2018, best North year of my life, um, which then led to my drug addiction. Um, I felt like he took that from me and he took mm. everything from me. So I coped with drugs, um, which landed me, you know, as far as selling my body for drugs. Mm. Um, so I think that having, not having the gay community or having someone take that identity from me definitely <laughs> affected me landing in prison. <laughs> had had that sexual assault never happened, who knows what would have happened, but I may not have went down the path I did to land me in prison. Okay. Um, but yeah, but now I'm great and I'm here and I'm sharing my story. Yes, you are. <laughs> how, how has the community responded to you now on, on this side? I have... Honestly, I have not personally had any issues. I think I'm a pretty likable guy. Um, so you are. <laughs> she, she's a joy. <laughs> um, so I think it's been great. And I mean, it's women's prison. Prisons <laughs> are a lot different because everyone's gay in women's prison. You know, <laughs> like it's a giant lesbian sleepover. Um, not. For those just know, it's not the dream camp. We're not going there having fun, running around. Like I have a question about that a little bit later. <laughs> oh, yeah. we'll if you into. say orange is the new black, I want yeah. you to know this right now. It is. You would not walk up to a man and go, is it like Oz? <laughs> like, yeah, it's so no, insulting. No, that's not what I'm going to ask. No, I know. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I was just telling yeah, yeah, yeah. the listeners. Yeah, it's know. the people in Idaho. That, <laughs> no, because yeah. like, that's, that's the thing. Not to take away, but like... That's the thing we get yeah. asked. Yeah. Orange is the New Black painted prison. And one thing is that was a federal prison. Mm -hmm. That was a federal. Mm -hmm. But it painted prison as if we're running around having these funny stories. And, and when it's like, no, I watched somebody get hit with a lock. Hey, I just watched mm. somebody sit, cry on the phone because their kids are getting taken away from their grandma because the grandma can't do this, that, and the third. There's a CEO sexually harassing and bringing heroin. And it's not. It's not. We're not running around making cupcakes and sharing ho-hos and cakes. Yeah. Like... That shit sucks, bro. <laughs> like, I loved prison for the community aspect. <laughs> I, people ask about Orange is the New Black. I'm, yes, it's exactly like that. Oh, um, it's, but it's, you're right. It's no, it's not. Community. The no, community is there, there but it's, it's the community. Uh, the way they paint it out. Yeah. Like, yeah, we keep, we, we, we're there for each other, but it's like, we're not running. It's, we're there because. Because no, no one else is. Say that. <laughs> God damn it. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh your turn oh yeah. yeah um so what was this i heard this thing and it was like what's one thing that would make white people glitch what's one thing that would make a queer uh, white people glitch when you tell them something that they're still white and it's like queerness it wasn't until like because i grew up in white spaces I grew up in a black predominant neighborhood, but I grew up in a, in, it's weird in Columbus. They have projects that are in the middle of suburbs. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> there's literally the PJs and there's drugs, there's shootouts, there's gangs. And then you walk out and there's a man, it's a white man just jogging in his orange, you know, and there's hmm. soccer moms and freshly cut lawns. But I grew up in white spaces. Like we move, I grew up, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and we came here to Columbus when I was about six or seven. And so, like, we, we went back and forth. We were here. And so, like, I went to predominantly black school for, like, up until second grade. My mom and my dad, um, they got together. We moved to Groveport. And, like, I hate how we call it microaggression. Let's just call it racism. It's not microaggression to ask me, oh, my God, can, uh, so does your hair grow like that? Or that's racism. It's not microaggression. You're not being semi, you're being racist. And I didn't realize the racism that is in the LGBT community. The reason why we have the word stud is because black, black masculine women weren't seen from other white lesbians. Mm. That was the thing, we didn't, have, we, we didn't have a seat at the table. And I tell this to people every time, what, 
what has white people as a whole in the in America had to protest for that didn't have black or brown people vote back in it? And it's so it's like even with LGBT rights, it was a black black les, a black woman lesbian who threw the first punch. It was a black trans woman who threw the first brick. And it's like, at the same time, black women, black masculine women couldn't even be seen. So we came up with this word stud. And then like, now it's becoming a thing where we're trying to reclaim that word back because we have white mask, white mask women wanting to say they're studs when it's like, you push us out of this community. And me coming out, being in there, I have noticed just how many white queer spaces that I'm in, just how much more white queerness racism, not microaggression that I deal with. Like there was a conversation I was having with one of my black gay friends. He's a, he's a black man who was talking about like, when you think of, when you say the word twink, who pops in your head? Not a gay black boy. It's not a small gay black boy. And so like the microaggression of just being like, he went to this club and they were saying they wanted twinks there. But when he walked up, they didn't want him in there, him or a couple of his friends because they were black. And it's just like, White queer people want to be oppressed so bad. And you, you are. You're queer. But you're still white at the end of the day. You are still white. And like, when it comes to like white non-binary people, especially, that it's like, you, it's like you, it's, it's like you're, it's like I have dealt with a lot of, a lot of white non-binary people who are so quick to talk about how they are oppressed when it's like we live in an age where if you come out with something, we're there. We're fighting it. We're getting you a seat at the table. We're throwing dukes. Black women, we, like, we, we still, we, we don't even get our pain taken seriously in hospitals. People don't realize that Beyonce and Serena Williams almost died giving birth because nobody listens to black women pain. We burned cities for George Floyd, but we didn't bat an eye for Breonna Taylor or Sandra Blair or uh, Tatiana Jefferson. And it's always like in these queer communities, in these queer spaces, it's like, when trans rights were being championed, what did you see when it came to trans rights? You only saw people that looked like y'all. But it was like, how many trans black women have been murdered before that? It's like, unless, unless it affects white bodies, queer, white queers, eh, unless it's gonna affect me in some way. And it's like, that's so hurtful. Because at the end of the day, at the end of what well, I was getting at with not white non-binary people, it's like, you can be oppressed, but you can also be oppressed. When, when somebody looks at you, they're not going to think, oh, you're non-binary. They're going to see white, regardless. I can be me and a, you could be non-binary and I'm non-binary, but guess what? You will still get treated a certain way than me. Mm-hmm. And what is, what is queerness? What is, what is living? What is all this stuff? Me as a person is resistance. Me living as a black lesbian woman is resistance. When you look at me, I make somebody upset. And the first thing that makes them upset is my skin tone. The second is my vagina. And the third is my queerness. And it's just like, there's so much fight in our communities for just black queer spaces where we're not being used as the token. When we're not being used as somebody who's for entertainment purposes. You know, oh my, I I went to the, the Renaissance with this really pretty girl named Hannah and uh, and she's biracial, but she looked amazing. And we were just walking, we're going. And she was telling me about how she went to uh, Bartstown. It was a, it was their pride. And she said, I was like, Oh, right before I could say, how was it? She goes, if you thought about a bunch of, you know, me stopping a bunch of fights between gay white men, then you're right. And I said, how fucked up was that? That that was my first thought when you said pride, only white people popped up in my head. Like this Columbus, there was a lot of, I don't know if y'all in Columbus, there was a, there was a protest at some point because of the lack of representation of black people. And I say black people are not people of color because there's anti-blackness in every community. That's why we say black people and people of color, because I have been, I have been stereotyped and treated differently by Mexicans, Asians, Jewish people. There's anti-blackness in every community. And it was like, there was none. And so there, I had problems with going to Pride because it was my first Pride since being out of prison. And I wanted to go. But it's like, when you, what do you do when you go and you look around and all these queer people don't look like you? How do I feel safe as a black person, as a black woman, as a black 
lesbian, as a black masculine lesbian in a all white queer bar. You know what I mean? I walk in, I feel safe because we're gay. But that's it. Sure. How did that, how did that play out and, and really kind of back to all of you when you were in prison in terms of accessing healthcare? I mean, were you treated differently? I'm sure you were, but talk about how your how your healthcare treatment in prison was. My favorite my favorite memory from healthcare in prison. There are so many favorite memories, but this is particularly problematic. So um, <laughs> we had a huge scabies outbreak at the prison that I was in. Were you there for that? Oh my God. Oh, good. Same. I'm glad it wasn't this. We had out. Okay, yes. Yeah. We, what year was it? Mm, 2017. <laughs> it's the great scabies. No, ours, yeah. ours, was, ours <laughs> right. was like, was it? I think, I think it might have been before that. Was it? Yeah, we had a whole. It was a. So we don't. Problem. They wanted to blame the dog program, the dog training program, as the reason for the scabies. I don't know. At any rate, <laughs> there was a nut like there. So if you're not familiar with prison, um, bunk beds, rows as long as you can see. And um, on either side of my bunk, uh, there was a number of us who would all play cards in the evening as we were waiting on count to clear. Uh, count where they say one, two, three, four, five, seven felons mm -hmm. are here, great. Um, and you know we would play cards, wait on count to clear, watch TV, take our shower, go to bed, whatever. And so a couple of those uh, individuals ended up with scabies. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, I started itching. And uh, so I went to get treated knowing what it would likely was because it was going around other dorms. And instead of being treated, you know, they do a little line between your fingers or something and see if they show the little scaby marks. I don't know. Um, they said, well, if you weren't cuddling with so many people, we probably wouldn't be itching and sent me and sent me out of the medical dorm. <laughs> so I marched straight into the mental health dorm. Well, mental health wing, I should say, uh, where I had a really incredible counselor. I was, that was the one thing I was incredibly fortunate was to have really good counselors where I was. I lucked out. Um, and she was livid. And she got on the phone to the um, medical administrator and said, you will test him now and you will deal with this unprofessionalism now. Um, but it was one of many times where my sexuality was used against me to either deny care to punish me, to target me. Um, but healthcare? Come on. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I had scabies. And, um, they don't give healthcare to felons. What do you need help right, for? Right, yeah. Ibuprofen. Yeah, exactly. In a, nice, <laughs> in a nice pack. It's like second grade in the nurse. Water and ibuprofen for everything. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, But for me, that was probably one of the most visceral times that my you know, queerness impacted the quality of care that I got. Um, but I will say like, you know, re-entering now, it's still, it is not the first thing that I disclose to a provider, um, especially like a primary care provider. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I, I think it's just still a, a thing of trauma for me. Um, it's easier for me to disclose to a counselor. It's easier for me to disclose to a 12 step group. It's a little bit more difficult for primary care. And I think some of it is related to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I'm, it's, it has taken a long time for me to be confident in the fact that I will actually be treated in a way that's equitable if folks know that I have a conviction. Do you have a family member in recovery? You're not alone. Chosen Family is a support group that offers LGBTQ plus affirming education and support for family and friends of people who have relationship with substance use. We meet every Wednesday from 4 to 4.45 p.m., Eastern Standard Time. Meetings are online, so that means you can come as you are. For more info, to see all of our support groups, please visit EquitasHealth.com slash Start Healing. Let's get back to the episode. Um, in prison, my bunkie, because I wasn't in the bays, I, we had this house, so I had a bunkie, and he was my best friend. His name was Jacob. He was transgender, and he suffered all sorts of just horrible treatment because he identified as a man, mm. but had yeah. I was I was confused by that. Had, I was okay. Yeah, <laughs> was yeah. Born with a vagina. Sure, but a male. But but yes. In a female prison. Correct, um, because he did not have bottom surgery. Yeah. So, um, 
he would tell me about just I would I would witness so many awful experiences, but he would tell me about just the treatment from the doctors, not taking him seriously, um, you know, not using, you know, not, not using his correct pronouns, just all of the disrespect um, that he felt and went through with that. And he, he had a hell of a time in prison. <laughs> I felt for him. I, healthcare shit in general in prison. Like mm-hmm. they said, ibuprofen and water if you want anything. Um, but they wouldn't do anything to help him. And he was taking hormones prior to his incarceration yep. and did not receive any sort of yep. treatment or like even, even verbally, you mm-hmm. know, right. um, to work him through that while during his incarceration. Since he's, he's out and he's almost fully transitioned and back on his hormones. So he's doing good now. But during his incarceration, it was awful for him. And I got to see every, every part of it. Healthcare is trash. Yeah. We were there. I was in prison. I shipped out of prison May in 2013. And between May 20, between 2013 to 2015, for six months, that's why I said I prefaced the, those three years. For, the first, for six months, we had a veterinarian for a doctor. They didn't even, like, the veterinarian was the doctor. And, like, they didn't, something happened because a family member called or whatever. And that's when they got fired and let go because they were like, oh, you don't treat people. You would think at a women's prison they would have a gyno on staff. They don't. It's a, you got to fill out a kite. The gyno comes in, what, every three or six months? If that, there was a girl named Gabby. Shout out, Gabby. Best two-for-one store. And <laughs> she had been complaining about pain, complaining about pain on her, in her pelvic area. And they were just like, oh, you're fine, whatever, whatever. Ice pack. Ice pack, ibuprofen. <laughs> she found out later that she had, uh, why can't I, the bat, well, I want to say vagina cancer, uh, cervical cancer. Found out that she had cervical cancer and cysts on her uterus. And it was like, this was months and months later. And I guess a part of like the was it comes to it, it, just bleeding on yourself, like the stigma of like periods and what they surround. And it's like the last time I bled on myself, I was nine. The first time. The second time I was 21 in prison because the CO didn't feel like getting up and giving me a pad. Mm-hmm. And I was in a Dayton Correctional Institution is a maximum security prison because we house level three. So <laughs> gang gang. Uh, and because of that. It was like, I was, oh, I was a level three, which meant that I was locked in a room for 23 hours a day. So for 16 hours of it, I just sat in my own blood. And it got to, and it's just like the fact that they, it wasn't until almost a, an end of my incarceration when they started passing out tampons and more pads. Like oh, period, they give you tampons now? Yeah. No. <laughs> period poverty is a thing, and, and it affects juveniles. It affects prisons and jails. They don't, they don't give a, you got people who are, you got women who are bleeding, who have hepatitis C, and don't know the education around that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, because they were not educated about that, it's like there's so much hazard. There's it, there's a whole thing the I'm part of that are pushing a bill for that with the NAACP, Kaylin Tiggs, Miss Ohio, you're amazing. <laughs> but, like, when it would come to my sexual orientation, I always got referred to as Mr. Mm. You know, whenever one of the CEOs got mad, all right, Mr. Ellis, and I'd be like, it's Miss. It is, you know. It 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 was weird because it's like if since you were aggressive, you because the, our prison was originally men's prison. All these prisons in America were built for men mostly. Yeah. All right. There's only when you, if you count Cleveland pre-release, but I don't. You only have three prisons in Ohio, three women's prisons mm-hmm. out of what eighteen for men in DC. Something like that. Something like that. And DCI was a men's prison up till 2011. The COs would tell you. All they did was ship the dudes out and the girls came in. They still didn't, They still had their draws. The women had to clean the showers and you can only imagine. Like, all, peeling down posters and stuff. So you have this prison that is designed for men. People don't realize how that affects your uterus and your periods and how heavy you stand on Crown Creek and all that. And so, like, with the COs, because you were an aggressor, you know, if you became off as an aggressive, that's why that's why a lot of women will come in as Dolly Parton and leave as Tyrese. <laughs> <laughs> because it was like you got you got treated a little bit better and sometimes you got treated worse. And 
particularly I got treated, it was like the worst I got treated were by black male CEOs. That's the truth. It was like something about my masculinity, either if I got treated better by them or treated worse. I got, I got targeted to make a point like you are a girl. And at the same time, I was like, what's up? Hey, they were like, what's up? Beatles, come here. What's going on with old girl? Like, I remember just being, like, getting feisty once when I was 22 in the line. And Mr. Forgot his name, just picked. I remember, like, ah, and got picked up. And he just sat me down. And I just, because of the toxic masculinity that runs in the lesbian community that we're unpacking. I'm, I'm, I'm an old lesbian. I'm an old stud, all right? We're, we didn't wear bra, we wore bras when we had sex and we don't moan and <laughs> stone tops and you know, all that, which is fine. But like unpacking that, like it's okay to make noise when you have sex. It does, you're a girl, it's all right. <laughs> but I just remember like feeling so like, oh, he treated me like a guy. And like when it comes to that, with centering around white queerness, you get a lot of, white mask who would come in there and cultural appropriate and black scent and put on this uh, persona of what they think blackness is. And I remember a particular person, they were very racist and they stayed racist for a very, very, very long time. They had been in and out. And I remember trying to be friends for some reason, like, cause it's our job as black people to educate. It's not. And I remember them just sniffing me and saying, but well, like black people have a certain smell, like they smell, they have a certain stink to them. And I just remember like, were you grown in like a test tube? And then six months later, when they're no longer racist and they're got a cut in their eyebrow and they talking like this and they holding their pants, had the nerve and the audacity to walk up to me and say, yeah, so this nigga thought he was whatever, whatever. And nigga, and I'm just like, I'm reminded as I am a safe black. Because white people who think it's okay to use the N-word around me think I'm not black enough. Mm. Oh, you're fine. And so, like, I had to watch this person parade themselves in the thing that they, 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 they hate it so much. You, it's, what is it? Everybody wants, everybody wants black people's styles. They don't want black people problems. And so, like, and that's where that comes in with, like, the, career, with, like, the lesbian community. Because you got these white studs, which they're not placating like the whole idea with like the hey mama lesbians where it's just like it's a it's a plagiarized version of like how black lesbians studs talk to girls like what's up ma but somehow it got adopted by white 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 lesbian queers and they became something toxic so now they made a caricature out of us where i'm just like now i can't walk up to a girl like hey mom what's up what's up what you good because that's how i talk that is A-A-V-E. That is how black people talk. That is how black lesbians talk. But now I'm a recovering hey mama lesbian. <laughs> and, and it's like, I dealt with that in prison so much. So it was like either I'm being discriminated for being so masculine. And then I'm being, I'm being a mascot. I, am, I was always somebody's, some white person, some white lesbian's like black friend. I'm like, yeah, this is my nigga. And I remember my, I had a bunkie. Uh, I'll call them Rody for short, who would say nigga all the time to me in the room. They were, st they were a mask and like they would get onto the yard and get in arguments with people and be like, listen here, nigga. And I'm watching this, this just giant white person just say that. And then I would, to counteract that, I'd be like, Jody, did you just call me a nigga? <laughs> and, and then they would, they would open the door and they'd be like, why did you say that? Don't say that. Don't say, I'd be like, Dude, stop calling me a nigga. Look, Oh, shut up. I feel like as a white person, it doesn't matter if you don't use the hard R. It's the, if you say nigga, it sounds like nigger to me. And I want to make this very clear. Nigger was never a slur for black people. It's not a racial slur. It was literally an identifier. You had Mexicans, you had Indians, as they called them, and then you had niggers. Even for black women, they call us niggresses. And then, and black people in America are the only people that have gone through five different stages of how you identify us. So we were niggers, then we were Negroes, then we were coloreds, then we we're African-Americans, and then we're black. And it's like, America, we're human. But it's like they can't, because America's the only place where the losers got to go home. And, 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 and fine, fine, I can't own them? Well, they can't eat off my plates. Now my children have to go to school with them? Well, I'm gonna keep my flag. And people don't realize, like, we're not that far removed. I am third generation free. 
And so like when it comes to like the queerness, again, again, it's like I don't even feel safe. I didn't I couldn't even feel safe around my my white lesbian friends in, in the prison without having to worry, what are they gonna say? What I remember and I'm I remember Simpson. I'll just say that. I remember uh, somebody named Simpson, and I was sitting at the table with my white girlfriend, and they were sitting with their girlfriend, and we were talking. Simpson is a masculine-presenting lesbian. And it was just like, yeah, yeah, well, I like you. You're one of the good ones. You're not ghetto. And I just remember doing what every black person in America, particularly a black woman, has to do, smile and swallow. And I remember their girlfriend just being like, okay, we're going to go. And like the nuance that was missing, the fact that, that she couldn't even like, what? What's wrong? What did I say? And it's like, I can't even feel safe around other queer people in prison. Because if you don't look like me, then what? It's interesting to listen to you share some of those experiences about what it was like Thank inside. you for listening. Oh, yeah. Um, I was, oh, you're fine. I was thinking about, um, as I was listening to you, there was a couple of things that popped in my brain that were really interesting experiences that I had that I'd never had in my life before. Um, because clearly gay, um, clearly. Uh, You're a homosexual? Uh, all day. What, um, what, the, what the Jesus thing? So there were, there were a number of times where individuals would get out of the phone line, out of the water fountain line, because I was next and they were behind me. And they didn't want to drink after me. They didn't want to use the phone after me. Um, people who I became very close with, who were either straight or questioning their sexual orientation, would not share a meal with me. Um, even if I made it and we split it up between two different bowls. They wouldn't be seen eating with me. There were these really like primal barriers put in place. Um, I mean, I guess a type of, uh, I guess it helped them feel safe. I don't know, but there was this hypervigilance about eating after, drinking after, mm -hmm. using the phone after. Mm -hmm. um, the, other, the other thing that was really interesting from like a sociological point of view, I guess about my experience inside was that everyone, regardless of your gender identity, if you were bisexual or gay, you were a woman mm -hmm. in that in that unique oh. sociological world. One of the of girls, prison. we can pass you around. Correct, and that if you if you came in as someone that was already out in any capacity, it was assumed that you were the woman of that world, and I was not. And I made that very clear. My voice is deep. I've got hair on my arms. You're not going to put anything back there. I fight. Period. I fight. <laughs> and so I, but the, like the cool thing about it, and one of the things that I, the very few things that I will always think back about prison with some level of meaning and gratitude for are the number of individuals who had never been educated on the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. And there was a really deep level of respect both ways for the few individuals that I was able to have that conversation with. And they finally understood. And a lot of them were as hetero as you can get. It didn't change any of that, but they were like, I never realized the difference. And they had been locked up some for decades. Mm -hmm. And the difference between like, I am attracted to men and I am a man. And those can happen at the same time. Were some really, really rewarding conversations. But then on the other side of that, were those aggressions mm -hmm. of, I'm not gonna drink after you, I'm not gonna eat after you, I'm not gonna use a phone after you, because I guess I'll catch something. Um, and then of course, you know, the harassment from staff, which we could talk for hours about. Mm -hmm. um, but I will always think back with gratitude for those conversations with those men who were willing to open to a different way of thinking, and I hope remember those conversations. I wanna say something about, you said something with staff, I also like realized a lot as you're talking about it, being mask, be, being a stud. When it came to a lot of white COs, a lot of white male COs, they always assumed I was in there because I was selling drugs. Mm. I, you know, uh, if they didn't have, if they hadn't looked me up yet, they thought I, you know, I was there because obviously I murdered somebody. I had guns. You, it, it was the stigma of how, you know, you would treat a black man in prison, and listening to you. About your shared experience, about your experience, it's like that is only a glimpse 
of like the oppression as a as a person of color and as mm -hmm. a black gay because guess because at the end of the as I'm listening to you say you know you have people who are willing to sit down and listen they still didn't share their shit with you it's like how many people I've met where it's just like I'm okay if my kids gay as long as they bring home somebody that's not black mm -hmm. and it's like again you can't even have that conversations when you can't even get past the skin tone mm -hmm. and then and it's like somebody somebody didn't want to the person in prison didn't want to use, I, I'm, I'm gay, but they didn't want to use the phone after me because I was black. They didn't want to use the same bowl as me because I was black. I can't, mm -hmm. being, being gay, being queer is not a choice. But at the same time, you can't tell that somebody's queer, but you can tell that I am black. And so like, that's where that intersectionality is. And like, I'm, Audre Lloyd, who was the champion of it, spoke about that, spoke about the nuances of just like, dealing with the simple fact that somebody might not want to drink after you because you're gay but nobody wants to drink after me because i'm gay and i'm black nobody wants to hold no one wants to give respect me because i am a woman they're going to give me lower pay and it's like all of this was transcribed into being in prison and in, in healthcare because the doctors didn't want to listen the doctors were mostly white so of course they didn't want to listen to and gabby was black by the way you know that but it's like if we were black and we didn't have family that were willing to call. They didn't mm -hmm. care. Fuck. Mm -hmm. you know, who who cares about who cares about black women? And who cares about women in general? But particularly black women. It, it, and and then don't be and don't be masculine. Don't be a masculine black woman because it's like you shouldn't hurt. What you hurt yourself? Whatever. I took locks to the sock to get moved, mm. so I could fake falling down the steps. And it was just like, at the end of the day, when it came to mental health. And there was a lot of black people, a lot of black women who suffer from mental health. It's like it's a joke. Again, it's it's the nuance. Every I remember one of my white friends saying, "Why do you always talk about race? It's always about race with you." No, it isn't. It's because you've never had to talk about it. Race is not a conversation white people have to have because it's not a thing. But I have to worry about if the doctor is going to see me. When I went to prison, I shot myself. And I was in jail and I shot myself. I was fresh out the hospital for three weeks. I still, I still had a breathing machine that I had to work on and practice to make my lungs strong. I was coming off an infection. Got to Jackson Pike. They never gave me my stuff. They said, mm -hmm. oh, the dude would be around. I went to go get examined, told the doctor. who's like, oh, I have chest tubes. You'll be fine. However, the bullet might come out your skin at some point because my body would just reject it. And I just remember laying in bed trying to like breathe and like work through like healing my lung. And I'm black. I don't have, I'm poor. I don't have family that can just call up here and be like, I'm going to sue. And so here I am rehabilitating myself, my body, doing the best that it can in survival and hard concrete with a bullet in my lung. And it was just like, Oh, okay. Don't worry, fella. Don't worry, sir. You'll be taken care of. And it was just like, God damn. You you can't catch a break. And so like that little bit of just that little bit of that pain that you felt about like no one wants to eat after you, no one wants to drink at you. Amplify that by a mm -hmm. thousand, and then times that by a million, mm -hmm. and then live in it. Put it put it on your body. Wear it as clothes. Because what a lot of people think is the Klansmen just turned in their white sheets for blue when really they just turned them into lab coats. They turned them into judge over whatever the fuck you call it. They turned them into ties. They turned them into stethoscopes. It's like I have to worry about my sexual orientation and being black and be a woman wherever I go. At this point, I'm getting to a point where it's like, if my, my, is my tattoo artist a black woman? Do I feel safe enough? Because even then... Even then, there's the, the idea that up until the 80s, they still thought black people had thicker skin. That was removed out of the medical books. Why tattoo artists who are predominantly white, because that's a male white male-dominated industry, I've gotten told, like, oh, we tattoo your skin. We're going to have to go hard because it won't absorb the ink. And then, you, then this rumor that black people, this lie and this myth that black people keloid. No, it's because these white tattoo artists are pressing too hard on our skin thinking it won't take the ink. And it's just like... Again, what space can I feel safe in that doesn't look like me? Like, all around. I couldn't be that safe in prison. I couldn't be that safe in a hospital. I couldn't be that safe anywhere at the end of the day. And, and by the way, my, my child, I have a child I'm adopting. My child is a white non-binary. So I don't have any beef. But what I'm getting at is when I've got into conversations and, like, 
and what what is what is white supremacy? It's colonialism. It's the removal of culture. We want everything to be the same. And there were conversations I had with some white non-binary neighbors. Well, we just want to get rid of gender as a whole. But then you erase the pain that indigenous women go through, black women. Why do you want to make everybody the same? That's not celebrating people. That's just another, that's a new age way of, of colonialism, of, of white supremacy. Because at the end of the day, if you remove gender, I still have to be black. I still have to be black. I am still black. And if I walk into a space where there's only white trans, white non-binaries, white lesbians, white gay men, they're not looking at me. They're not hearing my voice. They're not understanding my pain because I don't look like you. So we're gay. We're queer, though. What's your issue? Is it not affecting? Is it only affecting you? We're fine. We're fine. We're okay. It's all right. We'll wait till like they take our rights for abortion or something. You know, then we'll listen. We'll listen to the black women and indigenous women who have talked about this, who have been cattle chattel, who have been chattel, black women who were put through chattel slavery and indigenous women who were forced through sterilization. Like at the end of the day, being black, being queer, being a woman is like, God damn, can I breathe? Can, I, can we have help? Can we have help? Period poverty in, 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 in black neighborhoods, in jails, whatever. I didn't get taken seriously half the time too because I was a stud. When it came to me having a period, when it came to me like, hey, I need a shower because I'm bleeding on myself. You be all right, bro? Bro, little bro, little man, little man, you good? And it was just like, why do I have to be somebody's daughter or sister or cousin to be seen as a human. You don't need to know a black voice to know Black Lives Matter. You don't need to know a woman to know a woman matters. Like, God damn. And it's, it's just... Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to... We are we are really running close on time. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay, because this is the kind of conversations and things that I want people to hear um, who are listening. Um, but in the, in the remaining moments... Uh, what would you like to have changed if you had the magic wand? What would you like to have changed about healthcare? And I actually heard some really great ideas already. I'm just wondering any other final words. This is a, a, a an anti-stigma campaign where we are trying to get people to hear us and know what our healthcare needs are that are not being met. So what are those things for you? Take black women's pain seriously. That's a great one. Remove, pay, remove the racist shit that are in the medical books still. Reevaluate and reteach these doctors. Break the system. Fuck it. Yeah. Break the system. Because at the end of the day, it's the system that we have in place. The fact that uh, EpiPens cost so much. Diabetes, uh, uh, insulin costs so much. It all comes back down to classism and racism. Because if we keep these things high, who are they going to kill? Who are, who are they going to murder? I think <clears throat> one of the things for me that's been important is, as I spoke about earlier, building, building trust with healthcare providers. Um, having received such poor healthcare while I was incarcerated. The other thing for more of a behavioral and emotional health point of view um, that actually Ray and I are working together on is I think we need to do a better job of lifting up the unique um, traumatic experience of incarceration um, yes. and doing a better job of informing healthcare providers of the uniqueness of post-incarceration syndrome. Mm. Um, I, I think it is, my hope is in the next 10 years is that we will really see a revolutionary approach to dealing with that, both from a reentry preparation point of view, but also um, a more culturally competent point of view. It is just such a unique sociological, psychological, physiological, all at the same time abuse on an individual. And then we just set them, we release them, but they are far from free. Absolutely. Um, I completely agree. And hopefully we'll get some Google hits on post-incarceration syndrome because yeah. there's nothing right. out there. Yeah, 10 years. Thing. Like I'm like, wait, we <laughs> have to wait 10 years to get treatment. We need some literature here. Yeah. Um, but there is no, the, the funding gets cut for the programs. There's not rehabilitation happening. There's not mental health care for individuals. It's a giant adult daycare system that degrades us and traumatizes us. Say that. And it does nothing to improve us. We improve in spite of it. And mm -hmm. that is of our own will. Yep. Um, and that is why we are here today. But so many are not because they're not receiving that assistance. And they're not 
at that point in their life to be able to become self-aware and work through that. And we are working to provide that, but with assistance with healthcare, mental health care, and being able to re-enter society with peer groups and talk to the individuals just to help them with their mental health and their self-awareness, I think would do so much for incarceration to actually work on the mental health aspect yeah. instead of just caging us. Mm-hmm. And healthcare should never be a business. We, or it's just um, not being a business. yeah, we should never have to pay for that. Yeah. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you three for being here. This was, this is not the end of a conversation. This is really, it sounds cliche to say, but this is really getting information out there so people can yeah. hear it, talk about it, take action, get involved. Uh, it starts with talking, right? It's It starts with people talking and then people listening and then people taking action. And um, you three are, right, right? Get them, get them involved. Tell them listen to, to this black woman. Yes. There's one thing you don't do. Yeah. It's not not going to listen to me. Right. Okay. <laughs> I said and, that uh, yeah, so thank you. Uh, this, this was certainly enlightening for me. I, I'm hoping that the listeners also will pick up some things from this that they can move forward with. And I look forward to having more conversations with the three of you uh, down the road. So uh, thank you for tuning in uh, for this episode. Uh, stay tuned for more and look for us on Anchor Me, which is, I think, where this podcast is available. And Spotify. It is on Spotify. Yes, it is. I saw it on Spotify. Great. I was like, ah. There you go. Thank you and good night.